Hello everybody and welcome to the Anime Limited podcast. Uh, it's been a while since we last did one of these. It's been a year in fact since... Slacker! I know, t- tell me about it. Since the last Scotland Loves Anime, because it is that time of year again. It is Scotland Loves Anime and we are here to talk about the jury deliberations. Uh, which means that first and foremost I'm joined as always by uh, our jury chairman, Jonathan Clements. Speak up your bad selves. <laughs> um, but today we're doing things a little bit differently to how we've done some of our previous jury podcasts where we've had the our jury here. Uh, we've got one of the jury members because he happens to be in Edinburgh. So we're also on this podcast uh, introducing uh, Kembole Campbell. Hi, I'm the mouth of the jury, kind of like how the mouth of Sauron comes out of the gates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it's not Cam's fault that he's the only one here. Um, owing to uh, scheduling issues at our secret base in Glasgow, we had to do the jury on the Sunday, which meant that when we normally record the podcast, we were still watching the films. Uh, so that's why. But also, this year's jury uh, was remarkably unanimous in many uh, of their opinions. Um, so it's pretty easy to just get one of them to summarise everything. Um, the jury in question was uh, the uh, the computer games uh, Maven and Issa Sinusa. Campbell Campbell, who will introduce himself, I'm sure, and tell us all about his work for Little White Lies and Sight and Sound and pretty much everybody. The animator Eleanor Stewart and the comics guy Shah Nazir. So basically... Add Jonathan Clements to that, and no one's name can be spelled properly by anybody else. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm here. I, well, actually, no, people misspell my surname all the time, so actually, yeah, nobody can spell any of our names. People sometimes think I'm called Campbell Campbell, which I, maybe I should embrace now that I'm in Scotland. Yeah, that could work. <laughs> I mean, parents can be cruel, but yeah, not that cruel. Um, but in fact, um, Cam is introducing... Uh, the midweek session um, at the Cameo um, Cinema. I'm sure we're going to get to why we're at the Cameo later on, but basically it, it's Cam Campbell at the Cameo um, because the midweek films, which used to be just kind of filler in Edinburgh, just one film a night in between the two weekends, have now become a special curated stream. Uh, and the master of the stream is Cam Campbell. Mm. Indeed. So on, on, on that note, I mean, for starters, for anybody who's not familiar with your, yourself, Cam, I guess if you want to give people a quick introduction of who you are and what you do. Uh, where to begin? Well, in the year 1995, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a freelance uh, film and TV critic based in London. Uh, a lot of the time I'm writing broadly about anything that comes across my desk, but I've begun to specialise a lot in animation, international animation, and my passion project of writing about anime i guess you yeah. say you've begun but i've been ripping off your articles for three or four years at least <laughs> has it been that long yeah, yeah, yeah well. I, I i remember quoting you um several years ago so um you've definitely been you know up in the higher echelons of anime related stuff for quite a while now oh you flatter me okay well what you say only flattery you're gonna get <laughs> oh, it's mainly abuse on this podcast um, and, and so presumably see, I have no idea most of the stuff that happened at the festival I'm, I'm the last to know um, so um, I didn't even know about the, the various uh, different bits of curation until we were supposed to be putting articles for the blog together about them how were you approached by Anime Limited and what did they make you do? Uh, what it, well, <laughs> well first I got a letter saying that my family was being held hostage somewhere oh, that old chestnut um, and then Andrew Partridge told me that if I wanted to see them alive again, I should uh, program the midweek screenings. Um, It was a kind of like a tentative suggestion. I actually can't remember how long ago it came about, but uh, it was a very open remit, which was both exciting and quite daunting. I mean, for the the festival in general, 
Um, the, uh, someone did actually ask me in the audience uh, in Glasgow, he said, so how do you pick all the films? And I said, well, to be honest, they pick themselves. Most years, there's a very limited window of what's available. Basically, if it's coming out in the autumn in Japan, we try and get it first. If it's not in Leeds, if it's not in London, then that's a plus. Um, if it's come out in the spring, it's probably already run here. Um, and we, we try and put something together from literally what is available. And if we're lucky, there's something that's just out. And if we're unlucky, it's psychic school. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my initial thinking was I wanted to go at first by solely by authorship. But mm-hmm. then I kind of thought about it more and I was like, it would be more fun to take an audience on a little journey throughout those four days because it's four consecutive things. So it's like I can build more of a story here. So I went with the theme of... Uh, digital realms because it was an easy excuse to get a couple of my favorite films in there like perfect blue Mm. and then i kind of worked backwards from there Mm. um and you were immediately confronted i'm sure with with the the curse of the film festival uh planner which is that some of the films you wanted weren't available yes um it was originally intended as more of a chronological journey so perfect blue being one of the earliest films and then kind of going through up till the current, like the current day, so it was going to end with a screening of the Orbital Children, um, but you know, uh, practicality uh, mm. won out, and well, we, I got two out of four ain't bad in terms of like the ones. The festival programming is a very high score, to be honest. I, don't know, I mean, <laughs> probably no one's told you that just to make you feel bad, but actually, you know, the the, the if. One of the ways that I like to torment students is to, is to you know, make them program a festival and then take everything away two days before it happens <laughs> and, and, and just watch them you know, run around with their arms in the air wondering how they're going to replace it. But I suppose the idea is, is that it's anime's view of the interwebs from, yes. from Perfect Blue where, if I remember rightly, um, Misa is kind of in her room kind of discovering what MySpace is you know, <laughs> with, with open mouth wonder. Well, if, if you could call it... Um that I suppose more of just a creepy HTML blog in the kind of most primitive form of the internet. Um, so it began with um, different perspectives, and then I also wondered about the the subject as a whole. I think is something that we don't think of as being as tied to anime itself as it is. Like on a meta level, like most of the way that we consume anime is through the internet, and so that has also made me wonder about like the inverse of that relationship. Like what? How does we view the anime by the internet. How does anime view the internet itself? And then yeah. people, people are very surprised actually when you actually break it down because everyone understands that if you're looking at something on Netflix, you're watching it on the internet. I presume that's pretty much obvious. But the, the thing that the, the Japanese exhibitors worked out very quickly was that uh, a huge percentage of Japanese DVDs were being bought online. So the internet and the frames of the internet were even part of so-called bricks and mortar sales. Um, so, you know, someone who owns a DVD didn't necessarily walk into HMV and buy it. They probably ordered it from Amazon. So um, the Internet is hugely influential on, on, on that sort of thing. And, indeed, on the way that people communicate. Yes. One of the things that made Evangelion so huge in 1995 was 1995 was also the year they inaugurated the Gainax message board. So any weaving about that people were going to do, they could do online and get into fights online. And that was actually the first time they were able to do that in Japan. And Eva was the main you know, impetus for it. Yeah, and that communication aspect was uh, what, what, like a main driving force behind the season. That is how um, the internet has changed communication, like personal Mm. And like on a larger scale, like uh, Serial Experiments Lane, it start, begins to reckon with the idea of the internet becoming a global brain or mm-hmm. a hive mind. Mm-hmm. Whereas Perfect Blue uh, is confronting uh, how intimate 
uh, it can be and the problems that creates. Mm. And then um, some things like some wars uh, pairs it to a more uh, familial level. So there's sort of different degrees of interaction throughout uh, the season. And then some cool robots at the end. And I always think of the the, the, the midweek days as kind of filler, as kind of, you know, we... we we, we never really take them very seriously before, so letting someone curate them is a really nice idea. Um, and uh, I will say as well that we're, we're talking today on the... What day is it? It's the 26th. Of today is the 26th. It's Wednesday the 26th, so we're only, we're only two days into the midweek stuff. But but uh, the, um, the perfect blue screening was actually sold out. Which, yeah, is pretty much unprecedented. Not for one bad of for a 23-year-old so. film. Absolutely. 23, I thought it was 25. Uh, it was 1998, it is. wasn't it? So 24. Yeah, so yeah, 25th anniversary is coming up. Coming uh, up fast. I went by the festival release date. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, and, and I mean, we were talking about this with, with Cam you know, just yesterday, that, you know, Perfect Blue is a popular film, it is enduring, but it doesn't necessarily sell out screenings all the time. You no. know? It's not a guarantee of, you know, box office no. success. So but this, see this that. is something that we've talked about before on this podcast and in the film festival world in general, which is that every festival is someone's first. Uh, and Andrew Partridge is not allowed to listen to this podcast because he will use that as an excuse to run red line at every festival <laughs> that he puts on. But the fact is, is that there are, there are people who are showing up. They're 14 years old. They haven't seen any of these things. Not that they'd be allowed into Perfect Blue, of course, uh, at 14. <laughs> Wrong analogy to use. Someone who's, you know, 17, 18 years old, just getting into anime. These are all new to them. Um, and certainly seeing them on a cinema screen as well. Um, I, I did get a lot of feedback on that, trying to actually, like, just um, testing the audience... Uh, Testing that means to be some like an awful person. Poking them with a Just like, should you really be? No. Um, I kind of just asked impromptu, like, who has seen the film before or seen it on a cinema screen? And mm. between the two, it was just a whole audience of hands, which made me really, really happy. Um, mm. I, I introduced uh, Evangelion 3.0 plus one, take away the number you first thought of, uh, in Glasgow. And half of the audience uh, had seen it on Netflix. But they didn't care. They wanted to see it in a cinema. They wanted a cinema experience for a cinema film. And as you know, as as film festival organisers, we should be very pleased with that. Mm. That's an interesting, like double-edged sword as well. The fact that half of those people hadn't seen it, like that's what I find fascinating. Because you know, obviously, it was a big deal. It's the end of this massive franchise. Mm. The assumption was that if you're an Evangelion fan, you're not going to sit on your hands and wait for a cinema release. Oh, you'll no, just I've waited for 17 but... years. I can wait a few more days. <laughs> I guess there is that. Uh, I've not heard any more from the person who that was their first experience of Evangelion. So I know. It's, it's always so... Cause I walk onto the stage and I say, right, has anyone here never seen Penguin Drum before? Has anyone here never seen Evangelion? And there's always someone who puts their hand up and you think, oh my God, why, why are you here? <laughs> and sometimes it's, it's a benighted parent. Sometimes it's some poor old man who's got a bunch of like teenage daughters who absolutely want to see K-On or something um, but sometimes it's a member of the public who thought that looks interesting all this anime is the same sort of thing I'm sure I'll pick it up as I go along and he wanders in and it's absolutely baffling and, and it's and Andrew and I were actually we, we did a little mini tour of Scotland once showing off bits of anime to people and for some reason we ended up in it wasn't in Inverness it was somewhere like Dunfermline or something to the local film society showing Evangelion 2.0 and no, and no one had seen anything previously, and we were we had to explain everything to them, which is very difficult because we didn't understand it either. <laughs> um, so it's quite a quite a tough one. 
Um, and it's one of the things that's very frustrating about a film festival. You know, you want it to be outreach. You want to have 30% walk-ins of people who've never seen anime before. And then you're showing them episode four. And my, my smartwatch has just told me my heart rate's gone up because I'm getting very <laughs> upset about anything. <laughs> I'm so angry about it. But, you know, um, you, we don't want to scare people off. Um, and that's kind of worrying that we could scare people mm. off um, if they see something that's impenetrable. Um, I mean, that's a great thing about Perfect Blue, Summer Wars... Um, you know, they are self-contained. Um, and, and this will be something that comes up in our jury discussion as well, because one of the things that really became apparent very quickly with the jury that we had this year was they deeply appreciated a film that was made for film's mm. sake. Not something that was a tie-in, not something that was based on a light novel or, a, or a, you know, an adaptation of a manga or something. The thing that really, um, you know, got people excited on the jury was a film that was made as a film. Mm. Yeah. Probably a bit of a spoiler there for those. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess on that note, we should, we should probably get get cracking and start talking through these films. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this is my warning that there will be spoilers here, like especially with one of these films, I think we're going to have to talk about the endings. Oh, so. God, yeah. <laughs> so be, be aware, if you've not seen these films, be prepared for spoilers. They will happen. So um, just uh, just bear with us on that. Um, but uh, otherwise, yeah, so first up for the jury was uh, Blue Thermal, which is... A film based on a manga series, but it is about um, gliders, uh, which is, I know, it's, it's one of the things that I, I always enjoy about anime is those weird kind of like hobbies that you would never get into as a normal person, but then suddenly here's some weird series about it and suddenly I'm really fascinated with it. Um, but it's kind of, it's really more of a sort of coming of age slash slice of life slash somewhat romance-led story. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess, Cam, we can start out with you in terms of your thoughts on, uh, on Blue Thermal. I'm with you in that I'm a big fan of uh, niche hobbyist 101 anime where you every now and then you'll get the little graphics explaining yeah. you know, like specific, very specific jargon, like uh, what, what people are doing on different updrafts in Blue Thermals, the title of the film, uh, which I think is actually a very nice title as a quick aside. And Unlike some of the other films, <laughs> less, at least this, this one's quite a lot more straightforward. I can give it that at least. Um, and I think there was a lot of charm in its presentation and a very romantic presentation of this hobby. I think that's something that most of us agreed upon, and which I think led to one of the main criticisms of it, uh, in that there were elements that of the story that felt incongruous, perhaps from it being compressed into quite a short running time where as a much longer running like manga, an adaptation of a much longer running yeah, a manga, a manga series, five yeah. volumes and it, this was originally intended as a tv show um, and it was very interesting to see how the jury uh, managed to divine that without any help because i forgot to tell them it was it was going to be a tv show and they were all saying this this felt like it should have been a tv show there, there were bits sticking out and there were subplots that didn't go anywhere and there were fast forwards that looks like they skipped an episode or something i was just about you know, i was just about to say the same episode thing and it meant that um, that compression meant that a lot of it was kind of like a lot of things being kind of half assed in terms of um, instead of doing one thing really well um, i remember anisa uh, expressing her frustration at 
that there was a love triangle in this at all. Yes, well, I mean, Anissa runs a mentoring organisation. She's very, very high up um, with something that's designed to get people of underrepresented genders into the computer gaming or computer programming world. Um, and, and she said it was very frustrating for her that um, a love triangle was introduced um, because uh, it made it very clear why men don't like to mentor women because they, there's always this kind of risk of impropriety. So the women are excluded from the mentoring scheme that's supposed to advance them, which perpetuates the system the mentoring scheme is trying to deal with. Um, Eleanor as well said something very similar in the, in the yeah. jury as well. I think, um, was it Shah who said something along the lines of um, the sort of heteronormativity of uh, stories like this, where it's like you have a man and a woman in one room and there's just a just sort of almost exec style impulse to like they have to get together rather than yes. have something no no that was me uh, no, that was, that you. was me uh, I was talking about <laughs> Adrian Rich um, the, the poet and critic um, but um, that makes me sound much smarter than I really am um, because I actually learned about this from Russell T Davis of Doctor Who but he said that uh, and the term that he used was the heterosexuality of drama he said if you put a man and a woman on screen there has to be a romance there has to be uh, a love that's requited or unrequited or frustrated or tension or, or resolved in some way and it's very frustrating for him as a gay man to see to, to see you know this kind of instant dragging of the narrative along a course in which he has no interest himself um, and, and I think several of the jurors felt very similar about this. That, that, that um, In fact, I can't remember who it was now. I think it was Anissa again, who said, it's really frustrating that the girl has to be special before anyone notices her. She has to be a genius as a glider pilot before anyone even you know pays her any attention. Why can't she just be a person? Why can't they all be together? But, the, I mean, another one of her objections was that there was a glider school, a glider club, full of people who were interested in gliding, but only a couple of them ever got to get into a plane. <laughs> this is what we meant about a lot of it being um, cut short. As even, like, the protagonist's own journey, we don't kind of get the satisfaction of going along with her on her progression through her abilities as a pilot. Um, it's sort of like someone tells us that she has good instincts. Yeah. One smash cut later, and she's an expert. And she's great. A glider. Yeah, and it's, like, it's not that it's unbelievable; it's that it's just we're robbed of the satisfaction of seeing that progress. And I, I think that's part of why it's so obvious that this was going to be a TV series. Because again, yeah, you know, when I watched this a little while back, again, it struck me instantly like this is this was not originally a film. Like no. you can just intuit that without really. And I think effort. even the manga was the subject of some controversy as well because Kana Azawa, who wrote the manga, she wanted it to be kind of like The Wire, but for gliding. That it would That's wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the wire but for X is basically any good anime plot. Um and and, and she uh she, she wanted it to take forever to get her her heroine into the air. She wanted it to all be about the club and for flying to be this kind of distant MacGuffin. And her editors at Comic at Bunch said, No, no, into the air, come on, straight away, into the air. Because that's what people want to see. This is a gliding manga, you've got to glide. And, and, and she was like, but I wanted to kind of learn and, you know, grow. And, no, no learning, no growing. Glide, glide, glide. When are we getting to the fireworks factory? Yeah, yeah when's the fireworks factory? <laughs> um, there was also, I think, going back, rewinding a little bit mm -hmm. um, to the love triangle as well, I guess, yeah, having all of these things cut, cut short to the results uh, rather than the journey, it, mm -hmm. it kind of robbed a lot of it of feeling. And I think that's why the love triangle kind of stuck out 
as, as particularly egregious in yeah. this respect. Like, and you're, because you're, the, there's you're, no build-up. Your summary, Cam, at the end of it all, you said, and then you apologised, but you said it was all a bit plain. <laughs> you know what, I stand by it. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a pun, but it was too late. Um, and Eleanor herself, she, she, she said that there were, you know, there were establishing ideas were really well rendered. Everything looked like it was going to go somewhere really interesting, and then it kind of leapt ahead. Like you don't need to see that. You don't need to see that. Which, of course, is a decision that any film director or writer makes about any narrative that they tell. Um, but uh, oh, yeah, sidebar. I was at the Alexander the Great exhibition at the British Library yesterday, um, and there was a curator showing some people around. Um, and she went, and this is, you know, Alexander talking to the trees of the sun and the trees of the moon, and finally, and the, and the guy went, well, that's just a story. And the look on her face, she kind of flashed with anger, and she went, they're all stories. <laughs> and, and everyone went quiet in the in the in the museum. So you know, same kind of thing here. You know, anyone anyone telling a story has to make decisions about what they cut, about what they. You know what they telegraph, what they they fast forward. But here it felt like it was being done in a bit of a haphazard way. Yeah, it, it, it feels like a bit of everything was cut, and you know nothing kind of really surfaces as a result because it's like mm. you know the main character is really interesting, mm. but you don't get to see enough of her to really appreciate that. The gliding angle really interesting, mm. but like you say, it has to fast forward to the like. Oh, she's a savant. Um, the director said in an interview, and I, I didn't mention this to the jury, but the director said in an interview that he he kind of read through it and he realised that the real story was that she brought everyone together. Um, but then making that the big denouement and that the car chase and that the you know the the big climax doesn't really work. Yeah, well, especially when that feels like that isn't really the big climax of the film by any stretch. It's like, you know, it doesn't end with everybody having a big party or anything. You know, it ends with someone seemingly faking their own death. Yes, but it is fascinating, (laughs) though, that, you know, uh, I mean, one of the things that the uh, the director, Tomohisa... Is it Tomohisa Taguchi? No, that's not. No, it's not. No, no, no. That's the next one. I've interviewed so many people in the last month. Um, But he he said that um, it was... um, the moment they started, he realised that something that you get in manga that you, 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 you can put to one side and forget about is there's no sound effects. So the silence of gliding, the fact that there's no engine noise to rev and there's no drama is something that you don't have to worry about in a manga. And the moment you're moving into a visual medium which need, re- requires sound, you can't slam on the afterburners for a dramatic mm-hmm. cut. You, know? you, you can't do that. Everything has to be carried instead by either the absence of noise or the score itself. I thought that um, it could have capitalised on such moments better because I think when the film was actually in the air, there was a there was like a kind of very graceful beauty to it. Um, mm. I think I don't really recall any moments of real silence while up in the air, and I think that could have made it really impactful, especially when mm. it's about the partially about the protagonist kind of inexplicable draw to being in the air like when she the first time she goes up she just comes back down she's just like I want to do that again yeah and there were like it was things like that where there were moments where I was there were superficial pleasures to be found in fits and starts like I said I think first off that I really liked how cartoonish some of the character animation was um and I like I really did like the uh representation of the gliding like the uh there's very nice gentle background animation and um, and some really interesting 
things that only glider weebs will ever know. Like I, I always assumed you wanted to go gliding, a plane has to tow you up into the air. Not so. There's like a giant winch at the end of the runway that just kind of tugs you up into the air. I was thinking a little bit, not just because it's about planes, but uh, I was thinking a little bit about a moment in Top Gun Maverick when at the beginning they're flying jets and landing them off the aircraft carrier, but then there's a very... Um, specific focus on the cables the cable brakes that keep the jets well they help the jets break when they land mm. and the focus on that sort of tactility is kind of visible in moments of blue thermal which i really like like the things when they're casting off the winch when they're going up into the yeah, air you're, like, you're the only person to ever compare blue thermal to top gun but we'll roll with this because this you know this will look good on the, the box planes flying <laughs> cables <laughs> Yeah, there's not a, a, a long scene in Top Gun Maverick where anybody loses a screwdriver. So. No, there isn't. That but, you know. <laughs> but, 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 but Top Gun is very much and very enjoyably in love with flying mm. in the same way that Blue Thermal is. Yes. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that does come through in moments, and I just wish that those moments became a little bit more of a highlight. Like you said, I think maybe carrying the sensation of being in the air and maybe some kind of silence may have elevated that a little bit more. Uh, not really sure mm, for sure but so uh, yeah so I think it's safe to say Blue Thermal was not our winner with the jury did, did it receive any votes Jonathan? it received no votes at all I mean this this year well we'll get to what happened this year uh, when we get to the other films but um, no the, the, the jury uh, were a little bit divided but not so divided that there wasn't a very clear winner from the very start and mm. um, um, Blue Thermal wasn't it no yeah. And not to say that Blue Thermal is a bad film at all. I mean, that's the other thing to bear in mind with a festival jury is that you're being asked to choose from four films, which all might be Oscar winners, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very difficult comparison to, to make. It, it's an interesting thing, even with the audience voting, because we've had people saying, well, I want to compare these films to each other, whereas mm. the intention that we have for the audience voting is we want to get your raw feeling about that film Immediately. as you walk out yeah, of that auditorium. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's... Well, so what did Blue Thermal get from the audience vote? Do you uh, let, let me just pull that up. Yeah, so obviously at the time of uh, recording this, we've not had any of the Edinburgh voting, but uh, in uh, Glasgow's voting, the audience gave Blue Thermal 3.66 out of 5 on average, which well, is that's... not the lowest of the four films, um, mm. but that is third place. Hmm. Okay, good to know. I think that will probably sum up its position with the jury here as well. I'd call it third place. Yeah, I I would say so. So on that note, we move on to our second film, uh, which is Goodbye Donglies, um, the directorial film debut of Atsuko Ishizuka. Um, To put the Anime Limited plug in here, you can book tickets to see its theatrical run right now at dongliesfilm.co.uk. So uh, that is coming out on November the 30th across the UK. So opportunities are plenty to see that film. Um, but yeah, so that was, was second in the running order. Um, so, Cam, I guess I'll let you take the lead again in your thoughts on Donglies. Sure. It's funny because I'd actually seen Donglies a couple of times before um, the jury viewing day, so I, I did sit it out, uh, which did kind of lead to me wondering in the back of my mind, I was like, how is everyone going to receive this? Because, um, I don't know, sitting in the room for Blue Thumb before that, you could feel everyone deflate a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not that we were all sitting there seething, but... Um, yeah, so it's kind of waiting to... No one tried to claw their way out this year, which did happen <laughs> the year before. <laughs> um, with um, Donglis, I was um, kind of struck by how... I, get, I feel like I got a feeling that it would be in the upper echelon of the kind of jury picks. Uh, everyone, it just seemed to go down much better with everybody. Um, I, I myself like thought it was one of the stronger... 
It's a lovely, it's a, it's a deceptively simple idea as well. It's that these bunch of idiots um, send up a drone when they're not supposed to and are accused of starting a forest fire. And they realise that the only way that they can prove their innocence is to get their drone back. But it's gone over the mountain, so they have to go on this kind of 18-hour quest into the wilderness to, to get back their errant drone. It's a very simple story, but Ishizuka kind of turns it into this kind of remake of Stand By Me, with you know a bunch of boys on their own, kind of bonding and getting through the wilderness. Um, uh, and uh, I'll leave Cam to finish that sentence. But there's no dead body. <laughs> there is no dead body, says Cam. Um, and uh, it, it, the thing it reminded me most of was, was the case of Hannah and Alice, in the sense that you have these idiots wandering around in very dangerous situations that turn out not to be dangerous at all, and that's part of the comedy. But neither jury had seen Hannah and Alice, um, so they... I, I, I mean, I think Stand By Me was the most obvious touchstone for, for you lot, wasn't it? I think so. Um, I viewed it as that via as what little I'd seen of uh, a place further than the universe... Yes, because, uh, oh, sorry, uh, uh, Ishizuka's previous thing was the uh, place further than, uh, further than the universe, which is about a bunch of girls who want to travel to Antarctica. And for this follow-up, she made it about a bunch of boys who kind of think about travelling to Iceland. So it's kind of a, a, an opposite there. But she very deliberately said, I needed to use boys, I needed to have boys in this, because um, there are so many anime that kind of do girls on an adventure, and it all becomes very samey. And she felt, as a director that the best way to tell this story was to use boys, because in her words, you can slap them around a bit. I guess you can see that in um, the sort of severity of the slapstick comedy. Like, they kind of run into they run into a bear mm-hmm. at one point, and it's played as absurd as a, fi- as a film about girls could be as well, but I suppose you can see it in how like, rough they get it. Mm. Uh, but... It's very, it's very interesting that a female director makes that decision, though. Mm. I, uh, I don't see many male directors going, I wanted to make this all about girls because they're softer. You know, no one's ever going to say that and get away with it. Well, it's strange because they, um, they're quite um, emotionally open, a lot of the film, because of how simple the premise is, is mm. about them dealing with um, a lot of unspoken issues that very slowly come to the fore. In fact, she's very good at unspoken issues. Ishizuka, she, she writes her scripts in a very different way. Um, and someone criticised her once uh, about her writing, saying, you write about everything except the thing that people are talking about. I don't think that's kind of more naturalistic. than mm. uh, People don't always... Uh, I mean, generally speaking, in a lot of anime dramas, you'll have people very didactically just being like, I feel like this and I feel like this. But really, you got, when you're in an environment with a lot of emotionally immature yeah. guys, they'll talk around what they're really feeling. And I think... Goodbye, Donglis emulates that very well. Mm. Uh, that was one of the things I liked about it most, as well as when it tied that into this very romantic, ethereal presentation of the natural landscape. She's kind of like these teenage issues. They very, again, very naturally feel like they tie into this sort of very wide-reaching uh, feeling. Like it makes these issues feel very serious in a way without being overblown yeah it, it doesn't feel like overblown teen drama like Case of Hannah and Alice does um, uh, if you look at the extras that come with uh, Josie and the tiger and the fish 
the screenwriter has a fascinating interview there where she says, because she comes from a world, um, she, she's not an anime scriptwriter, she's a, a live action scriptwriter, and she says she was really quite shocked at the rules for anime scriptwriting. Because she was obliged, for example, to have unnaturalistic dialogue. Because the director said to her, no one's going to remember who these people are. You have to say someone's name repeatedly in order for the audience to be able to walk out of the cinema and discuss the people that they've just seen. Because they won't go, oh yeah, Brad Pitt said to Angelina Jolie, uh, let's shoot everyone. You can't do that because no one knows who Brad Pitt is in this film. So you have to constantly reinforce the character's name. So people are much more performative in the way they address each other in anime scripts compared to live-action ones. It didn't really, yeah, it didn't feel that way in this. It uh, didn't feel that way, no. I, which uh, I've definitely appreciated more and more about it. Yeah, and I mean, the, the interesting thing for me is, I mean, again, talking about sort of the, the cliche of, you know, all female characters going on an adventure... I feel like this film also dodges the cliches of all male groups in anime because it tends to be very focused on like oh girls and mm. boobs and all of the kind of usual tropes of when That's you get a my Saturday night <laughs> exactly but you know normally when you get a group of boys together in anime there's a lot of very kind of cliched notes that they hear and this yeah this I mean, is actually like, like, you know, this fireworks is actually, as a case in point you know they're, they're, they're awful people because they're teenage boys yeah whereas this is actually a probably like the healthiest depiction of sort of male yeah. relationships I've seen in yeah. anime because they talk to each other about yeah, because life it's, and it's their a problems. fantasy idea of how boys <laughs> behave. <laughs> They'd actually all be talking about boobs in the real world. I mean, there's a little bit of that as well, in considering the inciting incident is them um, trying to make themselves look good by um, two of them cross-dressing and going on Roma's arm mm. while everyone's at the fireworks. But it's it's Which is something that I think a lot of the jury found very strange um, but I think everyone realised it as something that was very kind of humorously representative of the awkwardness of yeah, teenage boys I, I mean there is a cross-dressing scene which I felt was pointlessly and performatively woke but the jurors argued against that and, and uh, at least two of them said no no the whole idea is that these boys are pointless and performatively woke and, and, and the, the ludicrousness is in how ludicrous they are not how they're striking a blow for, for for putting on skirts. It was a yeah. It's a it's a funny scene. I think there's a lot of um, charm to how they interact with each other and the vulnerability of them mm. throughout. I thought was uh, I think very moving. And it, mm. even that um, in the kind of standby in the conjuring of stand by me in the story, there's a lot of elements that are very like very uh, kind of heavily like oh, what's the word. Um, kind of earmarks like you, someone basically, basically has like a flag over their head saying like I, I'm toast but um, you I, can say I, that in this this is a spoiler podcast you can you can say that <laughs> one, one of the characters doesn't make it you know and that's yeah so we, I mean right at pretty much right at the beginning we see um, what was it Roma and uh, Toto no I can't remember the other friend's name but uh, they're standing at a part basically a funeral pyre for drop and mm. The film doesn't really hide the fact that uh, Drop is kind of on borrowed time, mm. uh, as that he's like kind of very cryptically speaking about um, finding his treasure before the world ends. Mm. Um, and I think it's uh, a strong sign that even knowing with this kind of very, even with this knowledge and this thing at the nagging at the back of your mind, just like everyone will be thinking when what's going to happen to Drop and when, 
that I think when the moment actually comes, it is still quite affecting. Mm. Um, and yeah. I think that's a testament to Shizuka's writing. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think it's, it's the journey that they go on is what makes that impactful because it's not... It's, it's easy to kind of make a tearjerker by just going for the big kind of shock of like, yeah. oh, and actually this person was, you know, terminally ill or whatever. But the and fact that you know that and it just, you know... You're kind of thinking about what they're losing. Exactly, the yeah. It, it and really and Ishizuka is one of the female creatives who's being pushed to the, to the front uh, of the anime business by what is now a trend in womenomics. Like, let's go around the company and find someone who's good so we can have our own now Kogimada. That's kind of the attitude that a lot of the companies seem to have. Um, but um, you yourself said, Cam, that you felt that there was a real sign of an auteurist voice, of, of, of the Ishizuka as a real creator with potential. I think so. Um, mainly in that a lot of the films that we watched could sometimes feel, unless you're like really um, in the know, I think some of the films that we watch could feel a little bit anonymous in terms of like their identity. But with this, you kind of go from pretty much the very first couple of minutes even if you didn't know uh, the director's name like going in mm. you would know that it's her film there um, is something special about this film and, and it's the way it's been handled I also think that um, it was because um, it was one of the few I think it might be the only original original film it in, was. in the jury mm-hmm. and I think that was very clearly reflected in its pacing which we'd kind of been complaining about in a few of the other films and in how their um, say it's as an adaptation did hold them back in some ways mm. um, and as an original it did feel like it was very purpose made in all respects and that sort of auteurist angle on it feels more possible because it does mm. have the room to talk about what it wants portray and this it wants. is a wonderful thing because the the way the Japanese animation business works is everyone is incentivized to do remakes and adaptations and tie-ins, and it's a huge risk to make a film from nothing with no other um, contacts. You know, it's not just a case of you haven't got an audience that's already there. It's a case of you don't have character designs already in place. You can't point at a book cover and say, yeah, those guys are going to go off and have an adventure. And so it's an incredible risk for a company to make a film that has no other frame of reference. Um, and it's very good that Don Glees, um, that you know, took that risk. However, the jury did finish by saying the one thing that held it back... The title. The <laughs> stupid title. Um, what was it you said that it was... Um a lot of the characters mistake it for the word uh, donguri. Donguri, which means which means acorn in Japanese. Which is kind of like a visual motif throughout. But beyond that, the actual reasoning behind the title, I thought, was again you can kind of chalk it up to teenage boys being teenage boys. Um, yeah, sadly, it also you know a lot of Japanese foreign sales um, uh, executives are just as stupid when it comes to naming their films, naming no <laughs> names. But you know, goodbye donglies is a terrible title. Uh, it's very rarely pronounced correctly. Um, Andrew was talking about it for months, and he kept on calling it donglies, like it was some kind of, you know, like bungee jumping or something. I think, um, I mean, the sort of vagueness of it is one thing, but then I think maybe I was annoyed by the in-film reasoning. <laughs> I thought the in-film reasoning behind it was really silly, where it was yeah, uh, it's, the, it's the a very emo, uh, don't glee. Yeah, don't uh, glee. Although uh, I suppose that like, the character saying that is sort of reflecting on how silly it is at the time. I know, well. but it, there's a form of kind of extraterritoriality here that is that we're obliged to talk about a film seriously 
when the name itself is a is a bad Japanese mistranslation or mistransliteration of an English term that they haven't really understood. Um, and that's very frustrating. And, and I remember we had a juror from Fetch, the marketing company, uh, a few years ago, Almar Hafleiderson, and we were talking about I Want to Eat Your Pancreas. And he said, the trouble I have with this film is I love this film, but the first paragraph of every single review is me trying to explain what the bloody title means. Yeah, and it's and, and I mean again, you know, to, compared to a place further than the universe, like that's an overly long title, but mm. it's a pretty you know nice descriptor of I, that series, and I, it feels like this needed something similar. Not I definitely yeah, something like that does evoke the sort of scale that Ishizuka is um, working with, as well as the more personal one. So I do like. That. Mm. Um, I just I just wanted to iterate again that I really love the shots of natural landscapes in this. Like, there's some really amazing stuff in that the camera work is sort of portraying these things that seem bigger than the sort of angle that the human eye can even look at. Um, yeah, and uh, and it's worth bearing in mind that more than 70% of Japan is National Trust land, and the reason is is that mountains and forests are uninhabitable. So our view of Japan, our vision of Japan, uh, is normally of these huge urban you know, cityscapes because that's the bit around the edge where the people live. But the interior of Japan, which is where most of Goodbye Donglis takes place, um, is a will is literally a wilderness, and it is unspoiled. There is um, yeah some fascinating stuff about nature overtaking uh, human made landscapes as well. Like when the boys come across a submerged uh, road uh, in one of the valleys, I think, uh, and just kind of a little like, like sort of almost magical realist touches like that. I think really kind of put a cap on it. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm, excellent. So yeah, so that is goodbye, Dunglees. I guess you can probably guess this did get some votes from the jury. So. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, should, should I? Uh, yeah. Let's, okay. let's. So um, uh, goodbye. He's got seven votes out of eight uh, from the jury. It was a very clear winner right from the start. However, the jury, um, s- several members of the jury were kind of, or rather, a couple of members of the jury almost wavered, almost gave their votes to another of the films. Uh, but we'll come to the reason why they, they, they wavered at the last minute later on. Mm, indeed, which brings us to our next film, the third in uh, our competition lineup, which is The Tunnel to Summer, The Exit the of Goodbye. The Tunnel to Summer, The Exit of Goodbye, which was in fact the film that, sev- that, that actually, yes, yeah, several jurors loved. Uh, Cam himself said it was 80% perfect and then it just, just went to. Yeah. <laughs> um, I said stacked it. I said tripped at the last hurdle. Yeah, he, he, he's not quite so rude as the rest of us. But um, Tunnel to Summer, uh, Exit of Goodbyes, um, is um, it's based on a light novel. Uh, and uh, frankly, it's, a, it's a, an assembly of a bunch of tropes that we've all seen before. Um, uh, the thing that for me was the most winning about it was was the female lead because she was a, a, a breath of fresh air, frankly, in the world of anime. But maybe you'd like to explain what the plot of um, Tunnel for Summer is before we get to that. Yeah, let's start with the eighty percent, and we'll get the eighty percent, and then we'll get to the twenty percent later on. Okay, so um, the Tunnel to Summer is about these two very isolated teenagers in the Japanese countryside, uh, and one day one of them uh, is sort of wrecked by grief for his uh, dead younger sister. Grief and guilt. Grief and guilt. Yeah. Um, something that goes... Her, his sister's death is something that he considers indirectly his fault. Hmm. Um, one day he comes across uh, a tu- the eponymous tunnel um, that is part of local myth in that if you go into it and uh, 
you go into it and your wish will be granted, but in exchange, it takes time. For time. It takes time from you. And when he discovers this is real, um, the other main character, a girl he meets on this train platform, um, sort of follows him in, and they team up to investigate. Yeah, investigate the tunnel. And, and, and the investigation is great fun. The investigation, as Cam himself said, is very evocative of Penguin Highway. It's these two kids in a long summer. Um, using the means at their disposal to investigate a kind of ex filey supernatural Fortean phenomenon. And that's a lot of fun. And it's very compelling, you know, because they're, they're, they're like timing each other to see how many hours go by when they go into the tunnel and so on. And that's kind of fun. I think that sort of magical thing being treated scientifically is kind of just like catnip to me because of like the aforementioned Penguin Highway, I think is so um, strange and fun and compelling. Uh, but then also you mentioned that there's a lot of kind of cliches in this story, but I think it handles them so well. Um, it does handle them well. Uh, up to a point. Up to a point. But um, I think um, I think the two characters both sort of being these very um, closed off, almost robotic, deadpan people who don't really know how to interact with other people. Uh, Let me tell you about the girl because she's fantastic, and, and the, the jury, uh, particularly the female members of the jury, were very taken with her. She's a transfer student, which is a cliche we've seen a million times before. She walks into the classroom and the teacher says, here's this transfer student. Um, maybe you'd like to say a few words. And she says, no, I'm good. And then she just sits down. Uh, and then the school bully tries to front uh, with her and she just punches her in the face. <laughs> and frankly, there are so many Japanese producers I'd like to treat that way. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, it, it, it's lovely because she's, she's completely different from the usual kind of sappy transfer students that we get uh, in, in anime. Um, and, uh, and and she, she's very... Um, They're both very direct. I was going to say sassy, but she's not sassy. She's not this kind of performative bad girl. She is very much the master of her own fate. Um, and, and she doesn't take any shit from anybody. And that's a really nice thing to see and very rare in, in Japanese drama. Mm. It's also nice in terms of the relationship between those two main characters because anime usually tends to go for the trope of you've maybe got that character and the, uh, the love interest, the person opposite them is either, you know, super introverted or super extroverted and they have... They're a puzzle to unlock. Yeah. yeah. There's like, you know, opposite track or whatever it is. Whereas here, it feels like a natural match that like, yeah, of course these two would kind of hit it off. Yeah, they're kind of a team and that's really lovely for 80% of the film. It's, yeah, it's seeing, seeing them kind of draw each other out of their shells but without kind of compromising who they are is really great. And again, up to a point. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately... This is all right. This is the thing. Um, I've seen um, a couple of like Tomohisa Taguchi's works before, uh, which I hadn't. Rea- I didn't realize um, when we were watching it, but I really liked uh, the last film that they did, uh, Digimon Evolution. The third film, Kiz- the Digimon, Kizuna. yeah, Kizuna, which I gave a very positive review. Yeah, because it it, it, it it takes them the, into adulthood, and they have to put away childish things. And it nails the ending in that respect, mm-hmm. and it's a really good like cap on that. And I was like. This kind of, just kind of realizing it. It's like this can't be the same person. And similarly, a series that they co-wrote and directed, Akadama Drive, has a pretty powerful conclusion to it as well. As ridiculous and incredible as that show is, and how obvious the metaphor they're going for is right at the end. So to see this film trip up at like the very well, almost literally the very last moment, yeah, is was quite confounding to witness. I, 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 I mean, I guess we should really spoil it here at this point because we we can't not spoil it. But the the idea of the film is is very much like Voices of a Distant Star that they're, they're, the the time between them is longer and longer and longer as time goes by. 
But in, a, in an inversion of Voices from a Distant Star, it's the boy who stays young and the girl who gets older. But when the boy comes back, the girl is waiting for him. And I think that icks everyone out quite a lot. It felt like there were a few paths that uh, the film could have gone down to avoid this really just weird and frankly quite gross compromise that it comes to. And un- one that undermines um, uh, one of the going, character arcs. Much of the going. character arcs and the messaging that it's One of the for. jurors suggested it would have been a... So, I think it was Eleanor. She said that the film would have been so much better if he'd have come back and she hadn't waited for him. Mm-hmm. Um... Um, however, not everyone felt this was a bad thing. The audience comments, and one of them was, she is MILF, was one of the <laughs> audience comments that we had uh, from Glasgow. Of course. So they were obviously very pleased with that. Um, it, but it, it was a kind of icky ending. And uh, as several people have pointed out, both in the audience and in the jury, if it were about a, a 17-year-old girl who came back from a long quest, uh, some time dilation-related quest to find a 40-year-old man <laughs> waiting for her, uh, it certainly would have been presented in quite the same light. Mm, yeah, and it, it, it's strange as well because it is a film that has so many potential off-ramps to it, you know. It, it for, makes for, its own rule. It's, like, it's already made its own rule. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you know, the, you can either kind of cheat and find a way to, you know, like you say, the, the whole point of this tunnel is you can have wishes granted. So, you know, what, what if you do the kind of the whole genie in the bottle, I'll have infinite wishes of like, mm. well, I'll just have that time back things. Mm. Or you could have it, like you say, that she doesn't wait for him because, you know... Women. It's, yeah. it's, it's a bit of a jerk move to leave Birds, her eh? in the first it's, place. It's, it really is just like... the. the I think it's just like the kind of fixation on a what is revealed to be quite a brief, um, but you know, intense, like emotionally intense relationship. Like it's, it just doesn't yes, track that, with what, what the film is trying to say. That's what's unbelievable is is that this endless love should be concocted in the space of a couple of weeks, mm. and I don't buy it. Yeah, yeah. It's like as, as great as the characterization is up to that moment, it feels like it just doesn't work across that stretch of time. So it's a film that betrays its own rules, basically, and that's what annoyed the jury so much. It is quite funny that part of it is does involve the protagonist tripping at the very last moment, <laughs> and that causes time to kind of slip away from him. And I was just like, it's just the film creating its own like apt metaphor for itself. Mm. Yeah, I mean, per- personally, my personal preference would have been if she'd have said right I'm buggering off into the tunnel you can wait for me mm. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll meet up again when we're both the same age it's, mm. it's so frustrating to um, talk about a film that you liked so much right up until the ending like have something with a bad ending is just maybe the worst feeling Mm. Um, yeah, because you paid your money and you've taken your choice and you've been enjoying it that far and then there's this kind of awful taste at it, the end. It poisons the well. Um, it poisons the well. And because this, the film up to this point is generally, mm. I thought, was very delicate and very yeah. beautiful. Uh, the character animation was gorgeous. Like, awesome. really lovely. We had things. two jurors who were ready to assign one of their votes to Tunnel to Summer. Cam was one of them. Um, they were ready to assign one of their votes to Tunnel to Summer and then it got to the end and they were just like, nope, can't do it. That would, yeah, I, it, um, and in fact, if you and the other, and the other juror, I, it, is, it escapes me who the other juror was, but if those jurors had voted for Tunnel of Summer, then uh, Donglees would have still won, but it would have won by a single vote. Mm-hmm. It's, it was so frustrating because I was watching it and I was just like, this, <laughs> I was about half, we were about halfway through it and I was just looking at it and I was just like, yeah, this, is, this, this might be the one. Mm. Uh, no, it's not! <laughs> no, it really proved me wrong there. Yeah. But... Um, 
Yeah, it's just like it's it's re- really gorgeously rendered from beginning to end visually, but then it's just that that one kind of thing just kind of sticks in my craw about it, mm-hmm. which is frustrating. Yeah, and the, the, the interesting part about this is why I, bad. why I kind of kept, kept the audience rating back for Donglies is. I was I was curious to see which of those, these two films between Donglies and Tunnel to Summer would win out with the audience. And let's remember that Andy's statistics here are from an immediate reaction, yeah. uh, not someone having chance to consider it, but then, but then walking out going, "Oh, yeah, exactly." So between those two films, Tunnel of Summer: Exit of Goodbyes in Glasgow got an average of four point three four out of five. Wow which put it second behind Donglies with 4.6 out of 5. That's not a lot, is it? Which is pretty tight, but I did wonder whether it would... Because we often see... It tells some, you a lot about our audience <laughs> in Glasgow, to be honest. But we often see kind of a flip like between... Like older women in Glasgow. We often see a flip between what the audience likes versus the jury, jury likes, especially in terms of you know pure entertainment value. Yeah. But and also, uh, the jury is obliged to be more considerate. The, the whole point of the audience award is that it's an, it's an immediate and visceral reaction. Um, and, and so, you know... I feel like uh, I, I get uh, a sort of... Um, what's the word? I get, I get uh, favouring a sort of star-crossed romance and everything working out more or less, but I think that um, there are definitely more elegant solutions to get yourself to the kind of same... A dramaturg would have come up with a better ending for this that would have satisfied Cam. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think, yeah, there's definitely... Uh, maybe... maybe um, maybe a lesson about being beholden to source material here because I think um, yeah I feel absolutely like I've, um, they, they could have changed the ending I feel like I've spoken before about uh, in, on other in other platforms about how I don't think adaptation should mean like slavish loyalty to the source text I think it means uh, bringing the best elements of it forward and this was some one of those things that you kind of you leave out of the yeah <laughs> script I, if possible I, I, I did an adaptation of a death note a couple of years ago I did the audio drama version for France and Germany for um, and uh, I changed the ending I I worked on the principle as I went along of what would the original authors have done if they knew what I know now about the way that their work was received and about the technology in the world today and so on um, and so by the end, it was, it was significantly different from, from the original, uh, much to the annoyance of many German weebs. Um, but not all of them. Some of them were like, oh, yeah, that's what they should have done. Wow. But I think that, baff- that really baffles me because it's like if you really want everything to be exactly the same, why don't you just look at the original? Mm. Like, I think there's a, it means a lot of missed opportunity. Yeah. And, and, it's, it's and not- we're back on Cowboy Bebop, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mostly talking about the 2003 version of Full Metal Alchemist when I'm thinking about mm. this. But mm. Yeah, well, that, that. that's the thing. You, you can do something different and the original version still exists. It's not like he went and burned every copy of Death yeah, to ha- make yours. Ha- the Alan Moore has a very good perspective. He says, you know, my version is still there. You can look at my version. Everybody else. Oh, sorry. I guess we're 15 rated now. Um, but uh, Hugh David um, on, a, on a podcast about the um, Scotland's anime many years ago talked about the sympathy for the product. He said, when we get someone in on a project, we want to know they have sympathy. We want to know that they understand what the fans like, not necessarily what the fans want, but what the fans need. Um, and that's going to be very different from work to work. And yeah, a slavish copy is pointless. It's absolutely pointless. I don't want to see Psycho again done exactly the same way as it was before. Yeah. I don't need to see that. I've got the original. I don't need to see Cowboy Bebop live action. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, no one did. And, and I mean, it's interesting with the film like this because we, we 
you interviewed the director as, as part of our kind of uh, Q&A that runs after the film and you know it was he talked about at the time you're, you're already compressing a 300 page book mm. into a 90 minute film so you're, you're changing things and you're cutting things yeah. anyway yeah he could have so cut a little bit more why not Just yeah a why little not bit go more a little bit further and Cam would have been happy <laughs> me <laughs> talking like I was Just only you. Me, only Just you. a problem with this yeah, no, everyone um, everyone would have been happy Cam was the voice of the jury the thing as I said before the jury was quite unanimous on pretty much everything that we talked about this year um, I did, I did was, like Shah saying uh, they weren't angry, just disappointed. Just disappointed, <laughs> yes. Yeah. He, he really wanted to lay into um, uh, Thomas Osama and he said, I say what I say to my kids, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Which was really funny, but also just kind of, you know, a capturing the thing. I think it was just, it kind of introduced a slightly philosophical problem for me where, where I sort of walked out of the thing and I was just going, I wanted to like it so badly where I was just like, is 80%... And a movie that's 80% good still a good movie uh, well, it's like if it's really like the last 10% that really makes it yeah. like well, good and, or bad and, and, these, and these are exactly the kind of things that juries have to wrestle with and that's a yeah. very personal decision because it is very, in, in Japan uh, the, the, uh, it was actually the other way around Toei worked on the principle that the last 20% of a movie was the only bit that mattered mm. Um, because when you walked out of a cinema, they wanted you to be talking about that fantastic car chase at the end. Oh my God, that was amazing. And whatever happened to get you there, they didn't care. Uh, they called it the climax method of storytelling. And, <laughs> and, and, and they worked on the principle that as long as the ending was amazing, it didn't matter what happened for the hour yeah. before. And, and, and you can kind of see that in your typical, like, Shonen Jump movie. You know, it always has the same cadence of you start with a big bang to get people like, oh, wow, and it ends with a big bang so people come out of the cinema saying, wasn't that amazing? In the middle, it's filler, filler, and there's, filler. Yeah, there's an hour in the middle somewhere where maybe some <laughs> stuff happens. We go out and get some popcorn. <laughs> yeah. So what we're saying is that they should have killed God at the end of Tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, why not? Tunnels of Tunnels of Summer Killed God or had a, you know, pop concert with, uh, you know, Keris Matthews. <laughs> Sorry, did I say that out loud? Um, right, so Break of Dawn. So yes, yes, uh, t- talking of disappointment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, I mean, the thing is, is that we already know that Don Gleese has won and that all the other votes went to Tunnel of Summer. So Break of Dawn is a total also-ran in this, as it was for the jury, to be Yeah, honest. absolutely. And I mean, I guess, Cam, ha- having programmed a digital realms stream, you know, this film is about digital realms. Yeah, you could extent. have put Break so, of Dawn on your creation. Yeah, you, yeah. Could, I think even would, if would, I had the would, option, I would this is the question. Would you have curated this film? No. Um, I'm, I'm trying not to, I'm trying to be nice about it, but I think a lot of it was very unimaginative and didn't really have anything to say about the... I think we've seen it all depicting. before. We've seen it all before. Um, it's funny that uh, Penguin Highway... Can, can you say what the, what the plot was for the, for the benefit yes. of the, of the okay. audience? Um, so, a... What was it? A comet comes around every 27, 27 years. years. Um, and... The generation of children that we're following sees its sort of second appearance, mm-hmm. uh, and it's an entity from outer space. Oh, what a surprise! Um, that entity wants to get home. It has taken the form of um, an apartment block scheduled for demolition. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of cool. Which is like, you know, in concept, I think a cool idea, but. Um, Again, one that I've kind of seen before very recently. Anyway, this group of kids uh, get together and sort of try and workshop their w- a way of getting this thing off planet. And mm. that's more or less the movie. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's also a sort of a subplot of like burgeoning AI 
sentience in the form of a little like um, housemaid robot. But, um, yeah, I just who cares? Who, like, who, the the, the, I, the this, robot is cute, but also it just it all feels. You were very keen out. on the robot. I know that, and you were you were alone. I was that. the sole fan you, of you the robot. The only person who cared about the robot. <laughs> but you know, we, we saw this last year in, in in Sing a Bit of Harmony, done I think far better mm-hmm. in Sing a Bit of Harmony, which was a fantastically fun film uh, for all the wrong reasons. It's a bit like you know, Triumph of the Will. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you know Sing a Bit of Harmony, but it's basically, it's it. basically the fascist glee, um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's uh, and it kind of wrecks a whole lot of tropes of high school romance and kind of robots infiltrating schools and stuff, and, and, and it's genuinely funny, and the songs are good fun, and, and I really enjoyed it, but. Uh, and it won the audience award, didn't it? It uh, did, yeah. It did, yeah. So, I mean, it was very popular with the audience, but our jury were absolutely triggered by how... Um, what's the word? How sinister the whole thing was. I mean, you've already compared it to Triumph of the it's, it's Skynet the musical, you know. It's like, wouldn't it be great if the computers took over? Well, no, no, it wouldn't be great. Too late, but they take over, but they're singing. Um and, and so Break of Dawn was a bit of that. There was there was a nice angle about the Asagaya estate, which is this kind of ideal home thing in, in Tokyo, where there was this kind of perfect world developed by architects, which turned out not to be perfect, because you can never predict what the future will bring. Um, and, and that's a real place. Um, so it, it, it's sort of like, you know, the bar, uh, well, actually Eleanor compared it to the Barbican in London. Uh, uh, you know, so if you can imagine that... Uh, uh, a futuristic AI first contact drama set in the Barbican. You have a, a fair idea of what this was like. Um, but it was the, the real problem for me, um, and as jury chairman, I didn't have a say, but since we're doing this podcast, I might as well, you know, jump in, is the future it predicted, that the 27-year jump into the future that it dealt with was so insipid and poorly realised that I found it quite irritating. I think it was very unimaginative, both thematically and visually. Like, a lot of... Um, I, I feel like there's some kind of value in highlighting what things don't change, even as... Like, the more things Fair change, enough. the more things stay the yeah, same. But it, so, doesn't, it doesn't reach for that. So a case in point, uh, the robot artificial intelligence helps mum with the laundry. Mum's still doing the laundry. And I think Cam's view on this would be, well, that's a systemic issue that is very interesting that hasn't changed in 27 years whereas mine would be I don't think they gave you that much thought mm. no I mean that's my thing it's like this This is I thought this was a potential avenue that the film could go down but it doesn't yeah, really it, it, could have, it could have really gone it would have been very interesting for someone to say hang on a minute why are women still doing the laundry we've got fucking robots doing everything so it's just yeah that lack of imagination and then it's also how everything kind of looks very similar to our time but maybe with some neon lights on it yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, I, and I frankly expected better of Dai Sato who is the writer on this who worked on Cowboy Bebop and Wolf's Reign which he, does those exact things Cowboy yeah, Bebop is he basically he knows about. so much better how to write a future and the fact that he hasn't done that on, on this makes me think it's a fault of the original manga. Mm. It's funny that this is the first, second film in the jury out of out of four that has reminded me of a work by Hiroyasu Ishida because of because um, mentioned Penguin Highway or with um, yeah. Tunnel Summer Exit Goodbyes and with this one I kind of found myself thinking of Drifting Home because it's thinking it's it's portraying pretty much the exact same kind of social housing mm. and. Uh, sort of lamenting their destruction uh, and dealing with the emotions of the people who are forced out of these homes. Yeah. And Drifting Home has a similar thing where it turns a 
home into one of these apartment complexes into a moving vessel. Yeah, I mean that that was that was going to be the question for you, Jonathan. Whether is that a hot button topic in Japan or something that's kind of being moving talked building. about a lot in terms of you know, build, old apartment blocks being destroyed and you know because it, uh, it's certainly a recurring. Well, theme architecturally speaking, there's, there's a whole movement in Japan about uh, which which I did review a, a book about on the blog um, last year. Um, I can't remember, I think they were called the Mechanists or something. Um, and the idea is is that there was a whole architectural movement, like the people who built the Barbican, saying, why commute horizontally when you can commute vertically? Let's have a huge shopping complex underneath a massive tower block and people can come down to work and go up back to their houses. Um, so there, there was a lot of theorising um, about architecture in Japan and... Uh, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira, for example, drew directly on that, on, on, on the idea that maybe we could build out into Tokyo Bay, for example. The screaming noise you hear outside is people from Edinburgh University. It's not in this room. <laughs> Honest. Um, so, um, so, so, so that is, is certainly a thing. And certainly there were Japanese architects who were very keen on, envis- on envisioning the future and trying to deal with uh, the complications of Japan. Uh, as a place where everyone works in Tokyo but no one can live there kind of thing um, so those are all things when you talk about drifting home the, f- the thing that first springs to mind is, is firstly uh, the, the Jules Verne story of um, the, the Boys Adrift um, which is a hugely influential story in Japanese um, science fiction there have been like a dozen different versions of um, is it 12 adrift or 13 adrift or something like that the, the, the idea is you've got a, a, a bunch of children who are kind of who are literally set adrift um, in a a house out of time or a, or a ship that's kind of floating um, I, I just yeah there's so much the thing is that you know, like in what you mentioned about um, is sort of the politics of Japanese architecture I feel like there's so much there in the sort of death of utopian architecture and housing ideas that this film doesn't really touch on. Um, they, they're sort of sad about having to move home, but uh, that's Yeah, deep, 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 deep down in, in Break of Dawn, there's this idea that the, the, the ideal home of tomorrow is someone's shitty house in the future. And they're, they're constantly, the, the film returns to the idea that our protagonist is living in a world that many of us would dream of but for him, is mundane and absolutely jejun and boring. Um, but that's not enough to sustain uh, a story. No. I mean, that, that's my question. That I don't know if the jury spoke about this or, or whether either of you have a view in terms of what the audience, who the audience of this film is, because it feels like it's it's trying to engage a younger audience. But one, it's two hours long, which mm. is a bad call. And it also there's a whole quite long scene where they suddenly start talking about like what death feels like which is not really the kind of thing you normally talk about in a kids film no. and that, that was part of the problem for me is like I felt like this is a film that didn't really know who it was targeting and who mm. it was aimed at mm. it did feel torn between impulses I was thinking again with Drifting Home I think that Ishida has a very good handle on how to depict and how to talk to children um, because there's a lot of characters in that film who have these seemingly kind of hostile intentions but then the film explores where those feelings come from and it's like all in the kind of promotion of this idea of understanding and mutual empathy Mm. where this film had a lot of very similar relationships where there were there was animosity between 
a couple of the girl characters, mm. but then it just didn't feel very understanding about where that came from, um, and that became a point your, of interest. Your fellow juror Anissa, yeah, said as her first comment in the meeting, "I just don't care. <laughs> I just don't care." And, and it's a very interesting comment because part of me thinks, "Okay, well, you've had to see four films in a day. Maybe you flipped out." But actually, no, it was more than that. She she just didn't care. And I think that's quite important for a film like this. Is, is, is it doesn't the, give you reason to. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Shah, one of the other jurors, he said, I was bored out of my mind. But he said, more importantly, I felt that if I were a 14-year-old boy, I would also be bored out of my mind. Mm. There's very little in the way of like bells and whistles or yeah. like excitement when it comes to... Um, the kind of construction that they're doing and the uh, investigation that they're doing on this sort of alien entity. There should be... It doesn't really It wasn't to... Penguin Highway, was it? No. Let's face it. It's no Penguin Highway. Yeah. No Penguin uh, Highway. There's no sense of wonder about something that should be incredible to these yeah, people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and again, that, that's, that's the real issue, I think. That there's no sense of wonder. Mm. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, you think about the classic kind of kids' films about, you know, aliens and spaceships and trying to get them home. You know, you've got E.T., you've got even stuff that is not so great, like your Flight of the Navigator from the 80s. You know, they no. had that sense of wonder and Absolutely. E.T. No. E. is your touchstone for this. Yeah. If, if it doesn't match up to E.T. in any way, why are we bothering? <laughs> E.T. always used to creep me out, actually. But um, when I was much younger, I haven't... Uh, I've kind of it doesn't creep me out now. It's very sophisticated I'm a full-grown person now. But, um, yeah, I remember... Um, I think it was Anissa who said that she was very frustrated by how the girls just fought each other, seemingly for no reason. It's like this yeah. sort of um, very shallow mm. uh, representation of girls, like just kind of hating each other just because. Yeah, um, something to do. And I'm gonna, I feel like I'm going to keep going back to Drifting Home for this movie because mm. it has this exact same character relationship between two people. And then it teaches you that the sort of aggressor in that relationship between these two girls it's purely because she feels defensive about her own one of her other friends and it goes into this kind of understanding of her insecurities and all this and we don't really get any kind of expansion in that respect from Break of Dawn it just mm. sort of sweeps all that stuff under the rug mm. for god knows what yeah well I mean even the relationship between the main character and the AI which is supposed to be the emotional touchstone at the end that where you know you're supposed to be crying at this bit there's not enough real progression beyond him going from I don't really like the AI to oh I guess I like the AI now for you to really feel that connection and feel that bond that you know something has been torn away <laughs> really? from just like, by, like yeah. by the end he's kind of just like damn that sucks <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like the, the, maybe the one kind of positive point you know, I had in the film's favour is that the robot Nanako refers to herself in third person, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> I was like, that was it. Yeah, the, the, the one thing that I did like about this film is that it actually had active and engaged parents. Because one of the things that anime films often do is... Absent it either, dead parents. Yeah, absent or dead parents, or they're kind of, they're always off screen and they're talked about in the kind of don't tell your parents thing and they never get involved. Whereas here... It turns out there's a whole backstory with kind of the parents of the various kids. Mm. Actually, it was a bit convoluted, but there was also, you know, the protagonist's mom was actively engaged in terms of what, you know, what her kid was doing to, you know, pull him away from situations because, like, this is dangerous or, like, no, this is a thing you need to go and do. And I kind of liked that as being more active than the normal. Actually, yeah, they did, they did. I agree with that. 
I think. They did feel like real people as mm. well, if I'm going to be generous about this. Like, I think that there was... Well, you don't have to be generous. None of you voted for it. <laughs> <laughs> none of you. Absolutely none of you. You but, didn't even think about voting for it. But I think there's, a, there's this element of, like, a kind of the, the absentee parent, and that's kind of... There's not even... Sometimes there's not even a reason given, just to give create more room for the main characters, the, the children. But I think here it's very. It was was at least a little bit interesting to see that the parents had their own mistakes and regrets and things that mm. they couldn't fix. Mm. Like it seems very. Um, I don't want to say Spielberg, Spielbergian because that doesn't feel right. But mm. it seems very kind of like a, a nicer trope of that, like the sort of direct morality of children fixing I'm, kind of. The I'm sorry, of but I, I, I am with Anissa on this. I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, the other positive potential is if you're a fan of people being pushed off roofs, that happens with alarming regularity for us. How many people well. do you know who are fans of people being pushed off roofs, Andy? I mean, I'm pretty sure. I mean, my, apart my, from Partridge, my, yeah, my legal counsel tells me that I'm not allowed to comment on this. Any further? Actually, now I think about it, Partridge and two of his minions are very keen on pushing some people off some roofs. Now, <laughs> Andrew Partridge pushed me off a roof once. Did he? <laughs> no. Uh, okay. He threatened to. Was, though, say, was, it, was this before or after we kidnapped your family? Yeah. <laughs> but can so, families find people of the internet? It's okay. Yeah, they'll be released on Friday once this segment is over. <laughs> once he's done his duty. They so break of dawn with the audience warning Glasgow. <laughs> trying to segue back here. Yeah. Um, break of dawn with the audience warning Glasgow. Um, similarly fared poorly. Uh, 3.21 out of 5. Lowest scoring. Of More than it deserved. Which, uh, yeah, there, there was, there was not... Generous. Yeah, there was... I, I feel like it's pretty rare for anything to average below a three. You know, the three point two is pretty low by Scotland's anime. Someone would have to actively hate something to kind of vote it. In yeah, yeah. It was definitely the only film that got sort of a sprinkling of one star reviews. Um, mm. I saw kind of one or two come in for. You, you'd think that a few women would walk out of Tunnel of Summer saying that's just wrong. <laughs> but apparently not. Thanks, well, I, thanks I, weeb girls. Yeah. Well, I think that's that, that's a typical like this. This was wrong. Three out of five kind of <laughs> scoring system. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's uh, again pretty much a, a match between the audience and the jury, which is, is kind of interesting. We should probably talk about why we're not at the film house this year. Yes, yeah. So I was going to say, yeah, we should talk about the festival in general. Um, and obviously, yeah, if, if hopefully if you're listening to, the, to this um, and you had t- tickets for the film house, you, you found out what happened and you got to the right venue in time. We are we are putting signs up outside the film house for the weekends to make sure people are directed to the right place. Like placards, I mean, I was going to suggest a sandwich board to have like the end is nigh on one side and by the way, it's got my anime somewhere else on the other. <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously, uh, I imagine a lot of people will have heard that uh, the Edinburgh Film House, which is our usual Edinburgh home, um, was uh, shut down a few weeks before the festival um, two weeks ten yeah. days before the festival the Edinburgh Film House filed for bankruptcy yes yeah it went into oh my heart races <laughs> <laughs> yeah there, there was definitely there were definitely a few of those where that news came out um, so yeah it went into administration they shuttered the doors locked and bolted it put a sign up saying if you bought tickets yeah. tell your credit card company yeah. <laughs> because they'll help you um, so here's the deal people of Interwebs Land if you go to company's house and you download the financials of uh, the, um, the Centre for the Moving Image, which is the parent company for the Edinburgh Film House, it becomes very clear very quickly that they were trying to get out of that venue for two years. Um, they wanted planning permission for somewhere else. They didn't get it. The Film House is a listed building. It's a former church. 
It has a £200,000 a year heating bill. It can't be expanded. They were desperate to leave that building behind. And this was their excuse. Um, the Edinburgh Film Festival will, I'm sure, return very shortly because, as we very quickly discovered, the, the cinemas in Edinburgh are very keen to host films. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew Partridge and his minions um, moved heaven and earth to get the festival into a new venue with the same times um, and they, they managed it in three working days which is a remarkable achievement but part of that achievement is because other cinemas are very keen for the business Scotland Loves Anime was the Edinburgh Filmhouse's best weekend of the year um, it's slightly galling that they took £16,000 of ticket money before they proclaimed bankruptcy which makes it very difficult for us to get that money back out of them again but I believe Andrew is using his own money to cover people's tickets prices to make sure that uh, the cameo thing goes ahead. I at the time of this recording have not been to the cameo, I don't know what it's like I've got no idea Cam tells me they've got a stage they've got microphones, they've got films you know, it works like a cinema so that should be cool Uh, but I really don't know uh, what sort of situation we're in or indeed what sort of situation we'll be in next year when we'll have to decide whether we stay at the Cameo or move to another venue. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's uh, it's incredible that we've managed to just transpose everything across. You know, It's a ridiculous like achievement. Like. And I don't think that people realise just what Partridge managed. Because he was in Japan when this happened. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. He wasn't, you know, walking around Edinburgh knocking on people's doors saying, do you want a film festival? He was in sodding Japan when this happened, but he still managed to make it happen. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, you know, with the cost of living crisis that we have going on and with have people having put their money down for tickets, it very quickly became a red line for us that we couldn't. I may have mentioned Redline on the podcast. I wasn't that <laughs> film, quite pleased with that. Um, but you know, it was. Don't a red- listen, Partridge. You can't have it at every <laughs> festival. It's wrong. But you know, it was a red line that we couldn't ask people to say, "Well, buy another set of tickets. Yeah. Maybe you'll get a refund. Maybe you'll get a set. refund. Maybe you won't. That's what happens when you roll the dice on a film festival. Yeah, which I mean, you know, credit card companies will normally, you know, happily. Well, step not happily. In, well, happily is maybe yeah, a stretch, <laughs> but they will step in and refund that, but you're not going to see that money for a while. It was, I have to say, a move on the, on the part of the uh, centre of the moving image to take that much money for something they knew they were never going to provide. Mm. Um, I'm not an employee of Anime Limited, so I can say that without getting sued, um, but it, it was a bad, it was a nasty thing to do. Um, we got on very well with the people on the ground at the film house. They were our friends. They were very helpful to us. They were, for 10 years, they were uh, very cooperative in, in helping us out. But their, uh, their superiors um, happily took thousands of pounds of other people's money with no intention of uh, delivering on what they were promising. Mm. And, and I mean, yeah, that's, that's the sad thing is, you know, so many terrific and kind of dedicated people at that venue and at the Belmont Filmhouse in Aberdeen, which, you know, also often hosted SLA screenings, you know, mm. all just dropped, you know, just like that without any kind of notice or any of the, the usual requirements for, yeah. you know, making people... And last year they took £755,000 of subsidy money to keep themselves going. The year before, we paid them for a festival that never showed up there. We gave them a third of the money from the online Scotland Loves Anime um, in order to, uh, you know, help bolster um, their company. And yet, it, it, it all disappears overnight. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, but so, so, yeah, and I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's been really great as well as the venues in, in Edinburgh are kind of coming out to, to support and do everything they can to, you know, move heaven and earth to, to make the festival Yeah, happen. and I'll say the Cameo wasn't the only venue. There were several venues that were very keen for our business. It was a very nice and very touching uh, approach that in the moment Edinburgh Filmhouse went down, three other cinemas were like, hey, do you want to run your film festival at our place? Yeah, yeah, and it's also been great, you know, in terms of the the fan and the the kind of the follower response to the festival. You know, we we have been taking donations via our online portal, and some people have given very generously. Can to you that. say how much you've got? Um, I can't off the top of my head just because I don't re- recall. But uh, you know, we, we've had some really substantial donations, which you know is is great as well, and just helps to cover some of that gap while we, mm. we see what else we can. Yeah, so, as far as I know, Partridge is paying his own money um, but, to cover people's tickets. Yes, yeah, at the moment you know until we we kind of see what else we can do with funding from you know other sources that's mm. that was basically our default to, the to shocking thing for me is that the, the the launch party for the edinburgh film festival last year apparently cost two hundred thousand pounds <laughs> i don't know about you i could do quite a lot with two hundred thousand pounds yeah yeah i mean how many flowers could you buy for a world premiere with two hundred thousand pounds uh at least seventy five thousand flowers <laughs> so you know everyone at the festival could have like a hundred flowers <laughs> <laughs> It would be, I mean, the, the clean-up bill would be monstrous. Yeah. But, you know, let, let, we can do that for Naoko Yamada tomorrow if you really want. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they want a performative premiere. Let's give them £200,000 worth of an enemy. Yeah, well, I'll get, I'll get the company card out right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, we're just thrilled that we can actually be here because, you know, when that news broke and the severity of it became clear, you know, there was a point where you just looked at, looked at it and thought, what is this you know, going to happen? But you know, I, I was never worried. When that news broke, I thought Partridge is going to have somewhere within the week. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was wrong because he had it in three days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it was just the question of whether we could replicate what we wanted to do so precisely of, you know... Yeah, because the cameo are replicating the times of the film. Yeah. And even in terms of capacity, they're slightly smaller than the film house, but they're in the same ballpark. I think it's about 20, 25 seats less. Whereas, you know, there are other venues that are a lot smaller. There are some that were bigger and, you know, would, would potentially have, have, you know, been, been beneficial in that sense. But yeah, the fact we were able to transpose everything across without having to disappoint people and say well sorry we're going to be over capacity on this film so some Mm. people are going to have to have tickets cancelled you know it's like you say it's it's incredible that we managed to pull that around so quickly um but uh, yeah you know here we are at the end of the day the only thing that's different is the name on the front of the brochure mm-hmm. is film house rather than cameo yes yeah and unfortunately all of the posters around the city that again we paid for and had literally just gone up <laughs> that all say edinburgh film house which uh, you know it's it's always the the misfortune in terms of timing of like yeah the magazine had just gone to print the posters had just gone to print mm. um so it was too late to, to pull do you that. like the magazine cam you, yeah. you know you're impressed with that yeah it's free, you know. Yeah, I know. Cost, it doesn't cost anyone anything. That's free. I know. <laughs> Do you want your money back? It's free. <laughs> are, are there any highlight articles in the magazine, Cam, that you would like the one to, that he wrote. to talk Yeah, mine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. I'm trying to give you a chance to pimp your own content. <laughs> I mean, I wrote a little bit about um, the midweek curation that I've done. Uh, sort of a little entry on every film that's, and television show that's in there. Hmm. We should point out as well that Ren Scatani has done an online uh, curation as well, 
which is not in the brochure because I didn't find out about it until the 15th of December uh, of September. So like three months after I delivered the rest of the brochure. But there is also an online uh, um, selection of films, which is not, which is also you know above and beyond what's on at the uh, the, the the live festival. This yeah, stuff has a very good name as well uh, of bombs and roses. Yes, yeah. So um, so yeah, the, the online festival actually runs to the end of November. So even if you're listening to this and you've missed out on the mainline festival, uh, you can sign up to that at online.lovesanimation.com. Um, you know, it's it's the the price of a month of another streaming service that you could mention. Um, We've got uh, over a dozen films in there. Really great selection, like you say. There's a curated strand. There's an extension. And, and Ren is uh, presenting them as well. And right? yes, they all have uh, introductions from, from Ren for their strands. And obviously, yeah, there is an extension of, of Cam's strand as well with, with an intro. So, uh, yeah, plenty a of to, extra films in there. Yeah, plenty to, to get, your, uh, get your teeth into there as well. So, yeah, online.lovesanimation.com. Check that out if, uh, if you're interested. Uh, and so I think that about wraps it up unless there's anything else we need to cover so yeah I will I hope everybody enjoyed listening to this uh, this podcast um, if you didn't ask for your money back well as long as you enjoyed 80% of it then, you know, <laughs> the last 20% we'll, 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 we'll leave we'll leave up to you um, but so uh, yeah you know hopefully uh, people are, are their interest has been peaked in some of these films, you know, even, you know, negatives aside, there's, there's some really interesting stuff in there. And Prove us wrong, watch Break of Dawn and love it. Exactly, yeah, I mean, you know, that we, we had some, some positive audience feedback as well as the negatives, so there are definitely people who, who enjoyed those films. Um, so yeah, I'm sure there will be other opportunities to check all of them out. As I mentioned already, Donglees is coming out at the end of November, so if you want to check out our jury award-winning film, um, that is, uh, is open to you at the end of next month. Um, and yeah, other than that, um, I will let everybody get back to it. And uh, so I um, hope you enjoyed, and uh, we'll probably, I was going to say we'll talk to you again soon. We'll probably talk to you again in a year when we do this podcast. Yeah, let, let's face it, this podcast is uh, a shambles. <laughs> it is It is now basically the Scott Loves Anime podcast. Maybe we'll rope Andrew into recording one of these so we can have a, a double whammy over SLA time. Uh, but uh, whenever the next podcast is, we will uh, talk to you then.